You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Just so you know, if you use the code PODCAST20C before the 27th of October, PODCAST20C, all uppercase, you'll get 20% of everything mentioned in this episode. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and normally my friend Arthur Parkinson. But today I've got a guest who we've actually had before, Tom Brown, who is the head gardener at West Dean, that wonderful arts and crafts building and sort of workshop centre in West Sussex rather than East Sussex, which, if you haven't been, is a really fabulous place to go and learn as an adult. I love it. And it's really nice to have you back, Tom. I've been over to West Dean many times now to write about the trials that you tend to do in the glass houses there. And so when I was thinking about getting a guest to talk about forcing bulbs, either for the house or in the greenhouse, you immediately sprung to mind. So that's why we have Tom with us here today. So welcome, Tom, again. Hello. Yes, really pleased to be here, virtually. Virtually, (laughs) exactly. So I remember I first came over there to, I think the first trial that I visited in terms of bulbs was hyacinths. And you can imagine one of those beautiful Victorian glasshouses. And those of you who don't know West Dean, it's probably famous, the garden is famous for its glass houses more than anything and the incredible standard of trained fruit. But Tom had actually done this thing, which was rather radical when he first arrived, which is as well as having that beautiful trained fruit on the back walls, the whole of the first bay of one of the Victorian glass houses was completely full of hyacinths. And the smell as you opened the door was absolutely extraordinary. So, Tom, tell us about what made you decide to do that first sort of bulb inside or bulb for forcing trial. Yeah, I, with the Victorian glass houses here give such a, an amazing environment, particularly at the beginning and at the end of the year in providing that protection. So it was a way to sort of finding a plant that would celebrate that time of year and maybe bring things on a little bit earlier for people than they would normally see in their in their gardens and I feel sort of ashamed to say in terms when I looked at some of the winter displays we concentrated on winter salads a lot and um, looked at growing different types of mustards and and herbs to showcase that people could actually grow grow salads much earlier in under a sort of a forced environment and I thought to myself there's got to be a bit more color out there something else we can do other than salads that's going to get my juices going and people that visit a little bit more animated as well. And something that I've been really keen on ever since my time working at Wisley was a sort of an, a, a touch of nostalgia about some plants that doesn't go away. So whether it be things like delphiniums, chrysanthemums, sweet peas, pinks, although they might not necessarily be of the moment, they really strike a chord with people. So when I looked at this big Victorian glass house with a large raised bed in it that had had salads in before, trying to think of something early on that would provoke a reaction from people, often reminiscent of their pasts. Mm. And I thought, you know what, hyacinths have had a bit of a, a sort of a bad time of it. They, yeah. they get sort of they pushed to the side of being something that your grandma used to grow. Yeah. 
and I thought there's got to be got to be some interest there. So started looking into to different colours and purples and oranges and all this wonderful sort of kaleidoscope of colour that was available just with hyacinths that we thought was sort of slightly restricted to our tulip choices. Yeah, was there. And I thought, okay, let's let's do this. And like with a lot of the trials flying by the seat of my pants, I'm sort of having to grow these things en masse for the first time and learn about them and learn about them very quickly. So yeah, we went with hyacinths and, and through the whole process of growing those. And when these hyacinths started to flower all at once in this great big display of color, I think there's only one lady that I can think of that can come and see this with me and start talking about hyacinths. And that's when we got you down to have a look. Absolutely. Well, they were incredible. And well, I learned lots there, actually. I learned about because I've always planted them in single colors for indoors. And I remember reading one of the Vita Sattva West books, and she recommended putting all your bulbs, first of all, in the fridge in August and leaving them there for six weeks in the in the bottom of the fridge, or I don't know, maybe it wasn't a fridge in her day, but I think they had fridges. And then, um, and then bringing them out and potting them up, and then putting them under her bed because her bed at Sissinghurst was her bedroom was so cold, and she had the sort of counterpane, the the bedspread going right down, so it was completely dark. So she just stashed all her hyacinths under her bed. And I rather love that idea. I have to admit, I didn't, I didn't do that because I'm not perhaps quite as um, organic as, as Vita, but I do indeed do it. And we have a, a dark cupboard under the stairs here and I, I put them in there. And the point with forcing hyacinths is, you know, in a way it's quite a hassle because you do have to get them to do that thing of forcing. And forcing basically means, as I'm sure you will know, it's basically the thing of fooling the bulb to think it's spring. So you put it somewhere cold so it thinks it's winter, even in August, and that's the part in the fridge. And you leave it there for six weeks, which is enough to then break its dormancy and then make it think it's spring. So you're tricking it. When you bring it into the warmth of the house, you're tricking it into thinking it's spring and off it begins to grow. But if you don't do the bit under the stairs in the dark after the fridge, so I'm being a bit confused, you've got to do fridge for six weeks, under the bed for six to eight weeks or in a cupboard and then bring it into the house. And that will bring hyacinths into flower. But with Tom's system, you just planted them, didn't you? And you forced them into flower about four to six weeks early. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that struck me doing a bit of research into to growing these hyacinths, that they needed that dark period yeah. to put their roots down. And there's no good, although with a lot of bulbs, they come in a, a lovely package, a neat little package that has quite often got all the nutrition and all the, the goodness that the plant needs to, to sustain itself for that first year. They need that dark period to sort of tell the bulbs, don't think about growing at the yeah. moment. We just roots. want some nice yeah. roots. So with these hyacinths, I put them all in individual pots just to make sure that they would a grow and would have a nice little sort of flower bud on them before I planted them to make sure the display was going to be as full as possible and then i put the netting over them for for a couple of months oh, that's right so put them in these forcing frames, frames. yeah yeah and it seemed quite alien to me to cover a, a dormant bulb <gasps> in netting to put it in the dark because i thought these things aren't responding to light because there's no leaves to respond to the light but actually to force them to put their roots down yeah before you do anything was was a really important step yeah. and i and i learned a lot and in my previous life you know i used to have to 
plant up. We were talking in in our mess room today about our, our one of our first horticultural jobs, and a lot of us, one of the first things we had to do was make up little planted baskets with a little St. Paulia, a little ivy, a little Kentia palm, yeah, and, yeah, and maybe yeah. a, a couple of bulbs in. But with those hyacinth bulbs, there's nothing more disappointing than having a collection of three bulbs and only one or two of them flowering yes so absolutely i always sort of got into the habit of growing my bulbs in small pots first to make sure that they were going to grow and indeed perform before i then committed them to their final final destination but yeah that that dark period was was quite a revelation and i it it, it worked wonders because yeah. then when you pulled these hyacinths out after a couple of months those white roots were punching through the bottom they were so vigorous and which obviously gave them a great start i mean i really want to sort of highlight that tip to everybody I mean there are lots more tips coming I know but you taught me the thing of planting an individual hyacinth bulb in a nine centimeter pot and doing exactly as you say making sure that the roots form but also that that is actually a good bulb that's going to produce a flower rather than putting them straight into your Vita style container because you might get one dark bulb and it spoils your display so actually potting them on later once they've begun to form their flower spike or you can see that you know they've got that bullet like green sort of protuberance coming out of the bulb that is such a good tip and uh, I really recommend you all do that because it saves quite a lot of heartache I think and wasted time but the the other thing that you taught me that I think's really important that I learned from that trip over to Westine was no water. And I think that's a lot of us make that mistake with, with bulbs inside that we think they're like a houseplant. And every Friday we give them, I don't know, half a jug of water. And that is a disaster because that is when not only will the, the bulb may well start to rot, but also actually the flower crown as it's sort of pushing up also can start to rot and you get that really nasty sort of mold basically forming in in the apex of the plant yes certainly and and i'm a hands up i'm an overwaterer. i really have to hold myself back because I, I sort of want to give lots of love to my plants yeah. and i often think love is water yeah and at that time of year it's not is it it's murder yeah. and you don't want to sort of give them too much water because you can't take it out once you've given it and i think with bulbs particularly when they are in full fettle and they're growing with lots of foliage and lots of flower, they can process food, they can process water quite readily. Yeah. It's when it's at the beginning or the end of the season when their growth rate is really low. Yes. They just haven't got the ability to deal with all of that water that you give them. And, and often in the shoulder months of the growing season, that's when all the botrytis and the rot is around. So too much water is, is sort of double trouble from that sort of point of view. Yes, and again, key highlight for everybody is when they're really in flower well, don't water. So you've just said that, Tom, but it's at the end of the season as well that they can so easily start to rot off and you get just those three or four florets right at the top that go brown and horrible. And that is overwatering once they're actually up and flowering. So really, really be stingy on the water. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as I say, it's it's one of those things that you can never never take away. And I think when I was in absolute fear of working in the glass houses at Wisley in early days, having the supervisor there just saying to me, "Don't overwater these." Yeah. And on sort of particularly a weekend, just thinking, "I've just got to keep these bulbs alive." Yeah. Until Monday, and then I'll be all right. And although it might, it goes against every part of us as gardeners that we want to nurture these plants that we have and we feel that nurturing them is giving them things but um but actually less is a lot more and if you can particularly in those cold months when the light levels are a bit 
bit low yeah. and not inducive of growth. Just give them enough to keep them ticking along. No more than that, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. So in terms of variety, did you have any favorites? I mean, I know I have one or two, but in, high, in the highest sense, then we'll move on to other families. Yeah, I, I think you touched on that combination. I think, you know, we sort of think about tulips as being the only bulb that we've got that we can actually start having fun with color combinations. I think what showcased with these hyacinths was the fact that we could use different colors. So there was the the whites mm. and the, the city of Harlem, the yellow. Yes. I think with Aos, the Aos, Aos, the, um, the white worked really well. There was a particular favorite of mine, Blue Star, that yeah. had dark foliage and with a dark blue hyacinth flower coupled with sky jacket which had a very pale baby blue type flower and just the two tones of blue worked really well and then the sort of the gypsy queen the orange and the woodstock of the sort of the sort of lovely sort of mulberry color yeah they worked really well so yeah I, I think it was those combinations that I was really pleased with they were they were they were so great and you had them in you had two huge terracotta pots planted with the blues and huge terracotta pot to the left, I think planted with whites and creams and blues. And then this mass underneath them of, of the um, more purpley colored ones like Woodstock, which, which is my favorite. There's one other favorite group that I'd love to mention, which we trialed this last winter. And those are the multifloras. Now, they're quite alarmingly expensive, I find. So I, I hadn't gone for them in the past, really. But what we found in the trial here is they give you the most incredible succession of flowers. And so you can deadhead them rather like a very good amaryllis, which we're coming on to. But as one flowering stem goes over, you can remove that. But then there's more to come and more to come. And what we found with multiflora hyacinths, we had a very bright pink on trial here, a white and a pale blue. And really, honestly, uh, forced in the house, we started, they came into flower at the end of January with the forcing technique that we've talked about. So first of all, in the fridge, then in the dark, and then into the warmth and light. And we were still looking at them at least two months later. So they were amazing. I mean, I think almost to the end of March, they kept us going, by which time, of course, we've got them to pick from the garden. So you've sort of covered when you want them, really. And then the final one that I absolutely adore for forcing because it's so delicate, sort of looks almost like a a sort of domesticated bluebell, but has the wonderful, wonderful scent of hyacinth, is a variety called Anastasia. And probably in terms of forcing and in terms of garden hyacinth, that along with Woodstock are my two desert island varieties, I'd say. And you say about the expense, Sarah, I mean, you think about how much you pay for a fresh flowers in a bouquet. You know, actually sort of investing in these multiflora hyacinths, the amount of joy and flower that they will give you at a really sort of dark time in terms of the winter. It's, it's not a lot of money compared to other things that you would buy, dare yeah. I say, a meal out or a pint or whatever. Yeah, no, you're completely right. And did you discard the bulbs or did you plant them? I mean, here with the multifloras, we then plant them in the cutting garden. And, you know, the, the following spring, I've actually done it with proper labels so that I really know. And you think, oh, well, they must be exhausted now after forcing. But actually, I quite like the way they come up because they're a little bit more spare and you get more air between each individual floret. And I, I quite like that look. Yeah, I agree. It's much more sort of naturalistic feel to it. And, um, and we got a couple of years out of our hyacinths. Um, I don't know because you remember we came over sort of March time and it was then we went into lockdown. Yes, of course it was. Yeah. And we ha- I had all these hyacinths that I then 
lifted in the late spring because the garden was closed to the public so it didn't matter that we had all this sort of yellowing foliage in the glass house yeah but then I put them I baked them in one of the greenhouses through the summer uh, and did a bit of research about how to perpetuate them so give them that really forced hot dry condition and then managed to get two year the second year out of them under glass again but in pots this time and I think when it got to the end of year two I thought I'd probably push my luck enough and that's when they went into the garden. But I, yeah, I got two years, two years out of those in under glass. That's such a good tip. Uh, and yeah, and had I not been sort of forced with lockdown to have a big empty, lots of big empty greenhouses that I could sort of dry bulbs out without fear of anybody looking at the aesthetic value of them, it was fine. And I mean, that is how they would be in the wild, isn't it? So, I mean, I've seen hyacinths in the wild actually in, in Greece, and I, I think they might have been naturalized, but they were on this very rocky hillside in Crete. And I don't think they do naturally occur there, but I'm ashamed to say I didn't check that. Anyway, there, the bulb is sort of almost a little bit out of the ground and just getting absolutely baked by the Cretan sun. And I go on the same walk sort of almost every spring, apart from obviously during lockdown when I couldn't go to Greece or Crete, but, uh, and off they are flowering again. And so again, you, you kind of gave them their natural environment, didn't you, to, to become a very perennial bulb, basically. Yeah, and that's the trick, isn't it, with these bulbs is replicating their natural cycle and they do need a dormant period as much as a growing period and it's respecting that as gardeners. Yeah, exactly. So should we talk about amaryllis now, Tom, because they're another thing that I know you've done lots of experimenting. I mean, I first came uh, across amaryllis and you growing them actually where you used to work at Parham, I think, and you had lots of varieties there and really nice, unusual varieties in that equally incredibly beautiful ornamental glass house at Parham. But then I know you've done more experimenting since you've been at West Dean with them. Yeah, and I, I think a lot with a lot of these big displays or trials that I, I invest in, if I've had a bit of an experiment beforehand with a, a smaller amount and sort of get my eye in and, and see that the the flowering potential as well. I'm not that interested in growing something that's going to flower for two minutes and then be done. Mm. You want a reasonably long flowering period and it's worth all of that that investment into it. And these amaryllis had been been very good, very reliable. So I started talking to a few bulb suppliers and said, look, what kind of numbers are we talking in terms of available amaryllis? What, and I'm not, I don't want to have amaryllis red or amaryllis pink or white. I really like some named name varieties here and and a number of them came back and I think we accumulated about 60 or 70 wow. different named name varieties that were available to us so I thought okay then now we're talking now we're talking a display we can do this um, and with those big Victorian glass houses that we got at Westine it was going to make some impact and crikey did it and yeah. we started to to get them together and put them in these lovely sort of handmade terracotta pots that we have all uniformly along these this staging yeah. and created this display but they took a very long time to do anything and and it just showed me how temperature sensitive they are i think i'd read that you can get an amaryllis to flower sort of eight to ten weeks after planting mm. so, so i planned all of our displays for sort of just after christmas and these things didn't really flower till sort of march april time it, which is their natural time isn't it their natural time mm. and they were very happy because it was a bright light condition and they flowered brilliantly but yeah, I then sort of realized bringing them into a warmer environment as we would do at home if yes. we brought them into our living rooms or into our houses, 
you would get a response much quicker. So if you're looking to grow them for a Christmas display, you know, eight weeks and you probably got a lovely flower from a from a dormant bulb. But if you're growing them in a much cooler environment, they do just take their time, but it's worth it in the end. Yes, I remember being taught by an amaryllis grower that actually a shelf above a radiator, which you think, oh no, that's such a horrible place for a plant to live. But actually he said, bring them up to flower, you know, almost as warm as that and without drafts. And he said that was incredibly important that you don't want a sort of drafty window ledge where there's, there's sort of cold winds pouring through if you live anywhere like I live and that they really like a very protected environment. Cause of course they're South African, aren't they? Are they? Yeah. I think so. And, and again, don't water, don't water them. They're not growing, but just Put your watering can away. Don't do it. And the temptation to walk down these rows of amaryllis that were doing nothing. Yes. Oh, you know, if I just give them a little bit of water, that would be so helpful. They'll love me forever. No, 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 no. I had to really sort of put my hands in my pockets, as my mum used to say when we went in nice shops. You know, put hands in your pockets, don't touch anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, walk through the amaryllis and put your hands in your pockets. Don't touch them. Don't water them. And plant them a third of the bulb proud of the compost. That's really important, isn't it? And hold them tight so they're... They like noreens and what are the other things? Oh, those, uh, well, amaryllis belladonna. They like being, the, the wild amaryllis, the garden amaryllis, they like being held tight. So you never want more than, I remember again this guy saying to me, uh, you never want more than two fingers between the bulb and the side of the pot all the way around. And that's always stuck with me. Because it's just a big volume of wet compost, yeah. wet cold compost that they don't necessarily need. And yeah. the only other thing is if you've got a really tall, cultivar that you're growing that pot can provide ballast in some ways and in terms of support i bought online some of these amaryllis stakes which were a tiny metal circle on a metal stand and you could then encourage the flower spike through the the hoop and that just gave a little bit of support which was was necessary with some some of them were absolute whoppers the only way i came a cropper then was when they started to produce two or three flower spikes yes. and i only had yes. enough enough room in my hole for one yeah. so i had to sort of tie the other two to it um yeah absolutely but, uh, yeah so sometimes that and if, if you have got a particularly tall bulb that you want to create some ballast and i suppose a couple of handfuls of grit at the bottom would do that for you yeah good idea and then i know our temptation after christmas with amaryllis is just to think oh had enough of that now, I'll chuck it out with the bins. But you Mm. mustn't do that. And I remember again, this guy saying to me, sorry, I'm sort of spouting this guy at everyone all the time, but that every year you keep an amaryllis bulb, it's going to put on two fingers breadth on the circumference of the bulb. So one fingers breadth round on either side. And with that, Uh, after two years that will be a whole new flowering spike and each flowering spike will have one more flower head and it's true that the ones that we've stored here and managed to we we dry them off after sort of june july in an onion bag in a a sort of quite sheltered well sort of protected barn basically and then we plant them again at this time of year and so off they go again because again that's quite a conundrum for people isn't it how to how to look after them afterwards and i sort of like you went through that drying period and, and gave them that summer baking. But the amaryllis from the glass houses it showed absolutely no signs of slowing down when it got to June. Ah. We put them under, I put them under a tree because with a lot of the species tulips that we grew under glass, they struggled in their second year a little bit. Um, and the supplier said to me, well, put the, rather than put them in a baking polytunnel, yes. 
put them under an oak tree and keep them slightly cooler. Ah, so I thought, okay, we'll do that with the, the amaryllis tip. as well. And these things shot up the odd flower through the summer. I was like, okay, there's no way that these things wow, are dying down. Wow. And then did a sort of another uh, approach that we've tried this year is to keep them going a little bit until the end of September. Oh. And then withhold the watering and give them a sort of a, an imposed drought period through September, October. Okay. And then come the end of October, cut the foliage off right. and then repot it. Oh. So it's, it's going to be, I'm trialing that technique this year, but they're all up, up under this oak tree and they've still got lots of lovely dark green strappy leaves on them. Really? So no dormancy at all, in fact, really. I mean, they're still photosynthesizing. Yeah, sort of an induced dormancy through the month of October where there's no water. So they're under cover okay. now, so they're not getting any water. They're getting okay. the cooler temperatures. And yeah, and then to just whip the tops of the, the foliage off and start them again. Oh. So I will, um, I'm intrigued. And I think particularly because it was the first year that I've got these amaryllis and some of the bowls were quite small. Mm. I was keen for them to continue to bulk up a bit more yeah yeah great and so the photosynthesis will give you more starch in the bulb and a bigger bulb yeah it will make sense oh well we'll have to have you back tom so we can find out what happens <laughs> if i'm here weeping said i've got no amaryllis flowers <laughs> this time next march then it, it didn't work at all and yeah. back to the drying them yeah. out i think okay and then what about narcissus i remember seeing a couple of lovely species varieties with you in in the glass houses in lovely terracotta pots but uh, do you have any favorites yeah, there's uh, the, the Bulbacodium type called Golden Bells. Mm, sort of the, the, is it the Petticoat, Petty Hoop, Daily, yeah. uh, Daily is crikey, Daffodils. Daffodils. Um, they were different. And the nice thing about putting them in pots and then bringing them up on the bench or the table is you can appreciate the intricacy so much more. Yeah. Um, Whereas they're down in the garden, it's very difficult to get down there. And, or it's not so difficult to get it down, it may be more difficult to get up again. But yeah. actually, if you've got them on a table, you can see them and appreciate them. And this little Bulbacodium Daffodil was so delicate. Really yeah. beautiful. That worked yeah. worked really well. And then some of the group eight daffodils gave us some wonderful scent under glass. And and if you can imagine opening a greenhouse up first thing in the morning, which has then been completely enclosed and yes. it's had these daffodils in there all overnight and all, all morning. Yes. This, this the scent and with hyacinths as well, it's just like knocked you in the face, this scent. So um you really got to appreciate those more. Absolutely, because I think I saw Katie Heath, was it, with you? That, that, it's like Bell's song. It's sort of very soft, almost sort of pink grapefruit, orangey color um, with beautiful scent. I think I saw that at Westine first. But you're right. It's the thing of giving a plant a stage, isn't it? And particularly in the winter when you don't want to get down on your hands and knees and have a look at things and you don't want to pick them because they're too precious, really. But having a pot of them and they can sit outside on your doorstep and but then you can bring them in and put them on your kitchen table. And as long as you put them out with the cat or the dog, when you put them out for a wee at night, then um, they'll keep cool. And I, I just bring them in and out of the house the whole time and, and it just makes them last so much longer. So yeah, I think scent. I mean, paper whites are the obvious classic and they're the quickest from planting to flower. People always struggle with paper whites, which is that they get very leggy in the heat of the house and in the dark of the house. But I rather love that thing of making silver birch nests for them. And I quite often make really elaborate ones, which I can then make into a, almost like a, a centerpiece for the Christmas table with Christmas decorations on it. And so you've got your paper whites coming up into flower or flowering and so the perfume and then your sort of crazy silver birch nests, which are so easy to make. And then as long as you get tiny, small, smaller than normal size baubles, 
it looks amazing at Christmas. So that's certainly something that I do every year. And there's a, a, a lovely, lovely tip that I had from a cousin about 10 years ago who wrote to me, which is I do this tiered wedding cake thing, which is I have a big base pot with a row of paper white bulbs and then a pot inside that, like the next stage of a wedding cake. And I have uh, bulbs in that. And sometimes if I can find a small enough pot, I'll do three bulbs just in the apical pot. And so you get this sort of three tiered effect. And then if you do the silver birch all through it, it supports the foliage, supports the flowers, makes it more of a centerpiece and is quite a wow factor. Yeah, lovely. And those birch stems can often have little catkins on it, can't it, as well, which um, can really add to the aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. But I did was looking um, online with some of these, these bulb trials that I was doing and always remember making me laugh that someone suggested a tablespoon of vodka on the bulbs. Really? Which then stopped them growing so much and made them a lot stouter. And I just was sort of wondering, wow. imagining the person that had written this thing online, sort of measuring out vodka and sort of feeding their paper whites with a tablespoon. I expect it was a <laughs> tablespoon for the dafts and a glug for me type yeah. scenario, looking at them, what they were suggesting. But I thought that was really intriguing that then stop the flowers growing and, and bolting so much, but oh. not tried and tested, but just made me chuckle when I read yeah, it. We need to trial it. So before we finish, <laughs> I, I'd love you to talk about any unusual ones, because I know you've mentioned to me lacanalias, which is something I've literally never grown. I know they're perfumed and I know they're sort of almost like an exotic grape hyacinth, aren't they? But should we finish by talking about some exotics? Yeah, definitely. I mean, those, those lacanalia alioides are again from South Africa and there's almost sort of a ritual that goes with some of these bulbs. So, for example, from the middle of August, we start to water and feed the lacanalias and the Nerine sarniensis about once a week right. and let them dry out between waterings and give them a little pet with some seaweed feed every so often to sort of bring them into growth quite gently. So we're starting to do that with them and, and it won't be long beyond November time they'll start to sprout. And then you've got these tutti-frutti type flowers, these yes. yellow and red bicolored flowers that just appear and they go on and on and on and they just shoot up more and more flowers as the weeks go by and you can divide them every few years and they will then start to die down like the Nareen sarniensis and we're very nervous because we've got about 120 different types of Nareen sarniensis that we've been gifted Have from you? the Isle of Wight as a national oh, wow. collection which are now sitting up in the polytunnel and we're watering them and hoping they come to life and wow. the Nareen Society have threatened to come and visit them so I've got to get them looking good but yeah these things come up and they flower the Nareens or the, the Lacanalias and then when they finish you've got to sort of gently let them die down so we keep them frost free until the end of May and then they go out into a polytunnel or a cold greenhouse and then die down naturally and go completely dormant during the summer and they like a real baking in the summer and then then it all starts up again at the end of august so it's it's all it's sort of something slightly reassuring about that cyclical nature of growing bulbs and the lacanalias really fit that bill so would you get them in flower for christmas the lacanalias if you start them in august um they normally again it's going into quite a cool greenhouse environment so i tend to be sort of uh, February March time okay um, but again if you sort of introduce them to a warmer environment that might be worth experimenting with but um, certainly with us they're a bit cooler and later and the Nareens the, the Sarniensis ones the Sarniensis I would hope they'd start coming in around November time November time yeah mm. wonderful oh well that's a good uh, galvanizing place to end I think but just before we stop what you, have you got on trial this winter for next spring Tom 
we're going for wallflowers in quite a big way oh, this great. year. So um, we're growing lots of different types of wallflowers and Iceland poppies we're trying as well. I'm, I'm slightly intrigued by biennials I, and I love the value for money yeah, yeah. that you get for them for their spring displays. And I've got lots of, I'm going for parrot tulips this year in a lot of my containers, going to try lots of different ones of those. But great. just en masse, I'm going biennials just from a, a value point of view. I want to see how they're, how they're going to stand up against something like a tulip or a daft display. So we're trying those this year and growing lots of our hyacinths from previous years. So I've got my sort of top 10. Okay. And I'm going to be growing those alongside the amaryllis and the nerines in our, in our bulb house. Ah, great. Um, and I'm very, very tempted by amaranthus. So tempted by amaranthus. I just need a lot of space to do it. Yes. It's a niggle, which I'm sure I'm going to get to one day. It might be this summer, it might be next summer, but I'm, that's, that's floating around up there at the moment. But, and so the, the biennials, the wallflowers and the poppies, are they, they're not going to be inside, they'll be outside, will they? Outside. Yeah. Funnily enough, actually, the wallflowers are actually planted because oh, yeah. Um, yeah. they were desperate to go in. Yeah. And we grew a lot of cut flowers for drying this year, which we've experimented with. Yeah. And they ran out of steam quite early. Right. So yeah. they ran so out of so steam. Hot. The wallflowers were screaming to go in. So we said, okay, right, you're out. Wallflowers in. Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. So we've planted two thirds of them now already. So oh, they're fantastic. getting away. And I'm hoping they're going to be a decent size before the, the winter weather. Yeah, very good. Oh, well, we'll definitely have to come and chat to you about those next year when they're in flower. Thanks so much, Tom. Lovely to hear you again and see you soon. Lovely, Sarah. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Tom Brown, who has been already once on the podcast. And he's just an amazing font of, of knowledge, I always find. He thinks about things in a very systematic way, and I always learn stuff from him. Next week, Arthur and I will be going through our Christmas range and selecting the absolute must-haves for our Christmas houses and our Christmas tables and so we'll see you then just so you know if you use the code podcast 20c before the 27th of October podcast 20c all uppercase you'll get 20% of everything mentioned in this episode you can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.